Welcome to our podcast. If you enjoy this segment, we encourage you to check out the others. Also, if you're new to Hedgeye, you qualify for a special discount on one of our Hedgeye investing products. Email customer service director Matt Moran at mmoran at hedgeye.com. That's M-M-O-R-A-N at hedgeye.com. I'm Keith McCullough, and welcome to another Real Conversation with my friend Jim Rickards, the one and only right now. Jim, thanks for spending, uh, spending the time with me today. Very timely and topical uh, day to be talking about everything that, 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 we, that we talk about and you've been talking about. Uh, we're just chatting back and forth uh, of how hard it is to actually have a timely and topical book um, that fits the times. You've had many. This one, Aftermath, that... Um, we're going to be talking a little bit about today in terms of having, you know, some strategies. And not everybody has to lose all their money all at the same time, obviously. And and, and you've well prepared people for that. So we will talk about that. But Road to Ruin 2016, um, you're just you're just suggesting that that might even be more popular right now due to due to what you called out as the Ice Nine factor. Uh, maybe we'll start with that. You know, that's just it's kind of this thing that most people want to say that nobody could see coming, but uh, a lot of people evidently still don't know how to deal with it. Well, yeah, I saw it a few years ago, and uh, uh, I I took it from uh, Kurt Vonnegut, just to give credit. Kurt Vonnegut wrote a book in the early 60s called Cat's Cradle, dark comedic novel, which I highly recommend. But in uh, just briefly in Cat's Cradle, uh, there was a physicist who came up with an isotope of water in, in a vial and had the characteristic of the property that when you poured it into water, the water would freeze, but every molecule would come in contact and it would freeze also. So eventually all the rivers, streams, the oceans, the planet would freeze and life on Earth would come to an end. So it was a doomsday machine. Uh, and I took that idea and brought it over to financial markets. And the, the idea was uh, in a panic or in a crisis, uh, everyone wants liquidity. Best, best description of a financial panic I've ever heard is everybody wants their money back. Um, <laughs> and so what happens is you, certain venues get under stress and you close, let's say you close the stock exchange. Well, that doesn't make the demand for liquidity go away. People go and cash in the money market accounts. Then you got to close that. Then you people run to the banks, and then you have to close the banks, et cetera. And so it spreads just the way this molecule did, and eventually the entire financial system is locked down, at least temporarily. Um, so I took the ice nine. I, I call that ice nine. What's interesting is, you know, I'm I'm, I'm busy on you know, Twitter and social media and and various venues, and I see the ice nine uh, phenomena, which we just described, being uh, repeated over and over. And you know, as a as an, I give credit to Kurt Vonnegut, but in the financial sector, it kind of comes from that book, The Road to Ruin, Chapter One, where I describe it. Uh, but it's now become sort of standard issue financial jargon. And for people to say, oh, that will never happen. I'm sorry, it has many times. Uh, The New York Stock Exchange was closed for five months from uh, August to December 1914 at the outbreak of uh, World War I. Uh, The banks, FDR closed the banks by executive order in 1933, never said when they would reopen. They did eventually reopen, but they were were just closed for for eight days. Uh, We've seen, uh, well, circuit breaker is not quite the same as closing exchange, but it is temporarily so. In, 19, in 2013, the banks in Cyprus were closed. 2015, the banks in Greece were closed. So this happens uh, on some scale all over the world and has, and, and, and it's, it's, it's the risk in, in these uncertain times. And what we're trying to do is just warn people about that. Well, I, I think, I mean, and what I've always had a profound respect for in terms of your work and bodies of work now, I mean, now you have 
really the chronicle of books that you've written, and they do include the new bull case for gold. That's another great book. I mean, or currency war. I mean, you've effectively, I think you coined that. If you didn't, then uh, I'll just say that you did. Uh, the reality is that like, you're, you're, all of your work really is grounded in risk management within the context of long, super long histories and cycles. Um, you know, when you started Aftermath, actually, that's how you started it. You started with the Odyssey, I believe, and, 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 and you, you try to just pull people back uh, when everybody's pulled forward into this manic media that we've uh, developed. And yeah, you and I participate in it uh, on Twitter fully loaded because that's where we should be on the front lines of it. But really, the historical context is what's missing on Twitter. And I wonder, you know, how you feel about, how, how you feel about your process today uh, and if you could go back, if you would change anything at all about that. Um, no, I mean, the, the books, uh, you know, kind of stand on their own, but you're right, the introduction to Aftermath, that's my most recent book. I did um, use the, the myth of uh, Scylla and Charybdis, uh, uh, for those who uh, aren't, aren't fresh on uh, the Odyssey. Um, you know, Odysseus and his crew were trying to get, at the end of the Trojan War, they were trying to get home to wife and family, and they had this voyage, and it was full of adventures. But one of the things they had to go through were Scylla and Charybdis. Charybdis. Now, Scylla was a, uh, a you know, kind of monster, uh, a, a woman who was a ferocious woman who would, you know, kill the crew uh, and had a belt of dogs' heads that would eat you alive. Uh, Charybdis was a whirlpool, uh, and you had to sail between them. And uh, this was an early study in risk management because what uh, Odysseus said was, well, if I go close to Scylla, she'll kill some of my crew, but we'll make it through. But if I go to Charybdis, it's all or none, and we're going to get sucked down the whirlpool. So he chose Scylla, and that's another story. But as I say, uh, name your poison. I use that to analogize the situation the Federal Reserve found itself in beginning in 2014. I've said this for years, and it's in the book. Um, but the Fed, what were they trying to do? This is all you know, water under the, under the bridge. But what they were trying to do after the 2008 crisis, going through QE 1, 2, and 3, they were trying to get interest rates up to around 4%, and they were trying to get their balance sheet down to about two, uh, you know, a, a trillion, give or take. Uh, and the point was, try to normalize rates and the balance sheet so that when the next crisis came, they would be prepared. Uh, history shows, and the statistics are very good, you have to cut interest rates 5%, 4 5% to get the U.S. out of a recession. And we all know that, you know, beginning in 2008, the Fed took their balance sheet from 800 billion to four and a quarter trillion. So they were trying to get ready for the next recession. But the question I raise, and this is still in Charybdis, how do you normalize interest rates and the balance sheet without causing the recession that you're preparing to cure? And I said they would not be able to do it. And that's what happened at the end of 2018. Jay Powell threw in the towel. He he said, uh, first he said, we're not going to raise rates anymore. It was that December 2018 um, <laughs> rate hike, rate hike we were talking about not that long ago, that led to the Christmas Eve massacre that we all remember. But from October 1st to uh, December 24th, the stock market fell 18%, not quite a, a bear market, but close enough. Um, so first he said, we're not going to raise rates anymore. Okay. Then he said, well, we're thinking of cutting rates. Then they actually did cut rates uh, by uh, by March uh, 2019. Then they um, got rid of QT, remember quantitative tightening, uh, and then they went back to QE, depending on how you define it, with the repo crisis in September, or certainly if you say that's not QE because they were short-term assets, well, we're in it now. They're buying long-term assets again. So they had to reverse course, but the point is rates are back to zero. The balance sheet is actually at $5 trillion, I forget, four and a quarter. They utterly failed to get ready for the next recession. I'm not blaming Powell, because this was the legacy of Bernanke and Yellen. They set him up for this uh, 
trapped. There was no way out. So um, so they, they chose Scylla instead of Charybdis. We're still standing, but there's enormous damage here. Uh, and now they're out of bullets. I don't care what they say. There's more tools in the toolkit. No, there aren't. Um, I mean, you, you're, the balance sheet's going to go to $8 trillion, right? So at the height of the uh, QE3, December, uh, November 2014, as I say, it was four and a quarter, $4.5 trillion. Balance sheet's going to go to $8 trillion. So on the way, rates are zero. We can discuss negative rates. That's uh, they don't work. I mean, that's a, that's the short answer. We can spend a lot of time discussing it, but they don't work. So the Fed failed to normalize before the crisis. The crisis is here. They've done all they can, but, but let's understand what this is. They have kept the lights on. They have, you know, they bail uh, the success of bailouts, um, money market funds, primary dealers, commercial paper, muni bonds, corporate bonds. Uh, all these. Bailouts have already happened. They've either guaranteed these markets or flooded them with liquidity. They've kept the lights on, but don't mistake this for stimulus. There's no stimulative effect in any of this. What it does do is it, it, it keeps the plumbing going, but there's no stimulus from the Fed. They are out of bullets. From now on, it's all fiscal policy. We can talk about that as well. But but where they come together is the, the Fed has to monetize the fiscal policy, which they're in the process of doing. So uh, brave new world. But um, uh, yeah, that was that was I, I wrote about that uh, over uh, a year ago um, and uh, p posed the dilemma, said that there was no way out that they would fail. And, and they have. So, I mean, if you flush that out, let's just say at six trillion, we'll just pick a spot in between or along the way. Uh, that's around like, I think, 30 percent of GDP. You know, what is the current framework from their perspective that they aren't out of bullets? I mean, as they just continue to increase it. Or is your point just quite simply what I think my point's been, which is the Fed's panic's actually perpetuating market volatility, and market volatility is what creates market crashes, not the Fed's panic and saying that I have your back and I can stop this. Uh, how, do you, how do you think about that? Well, unlike the, the Federal Reserve Research staff, which rely on models that bear no relationship to reality, I like to stay in reality. So let's look <laughs> at reality. So, okay, we got out of the recession in June 2009. We're now, this is, we're not in a recession, we're in a depression, we can talk about that. Um, so you had this 11 year expansion, but the average annualized growth for 11 years was 2.2%. Now, of all the post 1980 uh, expansions, the average growth was 3.2%, slightly higher. And if you go back uh, you know, to the end of World War II, it was even higher than that. If between 83 and 86, we had 16% real growth. That's real, not nominal, over 5% a year. That's, that's what a, a V-shaped recovery looks like, 5% a year or higher. So we had 11 years of 2.2% growth versus a, a, a baseline, if you want to call it that, of 3.2%. And for those who say, you know, 1%, what's the big deal? Sorry, the range is kind of, you know, negative four plus five. Uh, get your calculator out. Do $20 trillion uh, economy times 1% compounded for 11 years. Tell me what you get. The answer is $4 trillion of lost wealth. So that was our recovery. That was before everything we're seeing now, which is uh, you, you got to go back to 1929, forget 2008, forget 2000 uh, dot com and 1998 long term capital, uh, 1987 one day crash 22 percent. Forget all that. You got to go back to 1929 to begin to get a sense of what we're going through right now. But um, uh, you know, but but my point is, the Fed, you know, didn't foresee any of that. Uh, that that what they're doing, as I say, it'll keep the lights on, but it's not going to stimulate anything. And the reason, uh, Keith, is it's not because of money supply. All this, you know, this Austrian Hayek, uh, monetarist Friedman stuff about 
you know, you print too much money, you get inflation. It's just not true, and it's never been true. That what causes inflation is not money printing, it's velocity, it's the turnover of money. Print all the money you want, but if nobody borrows it, nobody spends it, nobody lends it, and you don't actually go out and, as I say, turn it over, you don't get inflation. Actually, the problem now is deflation and the greatest liquidity trap in history. Velocity is psychological. The Fed can stick the landing on money supply. They can, you know, you're talking about base money, M0. They can make it anything they want. So they can stick the landing, but they can't change the psychology. Mm -hmm. Now, I grew up in the 50s and, you know, early 60s. Uh, I didn't live through the Great Depression, but my parents did, my grandparents did. So I kind of absorbed that mentality. They carried that with them through the rest of their lives. When I was a kid, we used to save rubber bands. We used to collect tin cans and take them down to a a Boy Scout Depot, because why would you waste a tin can? There was steel in it. You, know, you could build tanks and, and weapons. I mean, that, that was the World War II aspect of it. But that was the mentality. That lasted for, you know, two generations before, until the 70s came along. And then it was, a, you know, a party, uh, you know, a party till you drop. Well, something similar is going to happen now. This economic downturn is so severe. I, I was driving the car the other day. I was listening to uh, CNBC. I don't, I don't mean to pick on CNBC. They're all the same. But... Uh, uh, there was an analyst and he actually said, start talking about green shoots. <laughs> and I almost jumped out of the car. I mean, I was like, what? Because, uh, you know, for those who recall, 2009 was green shoots, green shoots every five minutes on CNBC. Well, there were no green shoots. We got brown weeds. Again, we got this 11%, 11 years of 2.2% growth. Green shoots was like, uh, you know, Chauncey Gardner and being there. There were no green shoots. So that expression has been completely discredited. Whoever was using it must not have been around then. But um, but now, uh, and you know, Larry Kudlow and Steve Mnuchin, I mean, you know, nice people, but uh, boy, you know, Larry Kudlow is one of the worst forecasting records I can think of outside the Fed itself. But uh, now they're talking about pent up demand. That's, this is the key to the V-shaped recovery. It's pent up demand. There's no pent up demand. Um, you know, my wife and I often go out for dinner on a Friday night. We didn't go out last Friday. We're not going out this Friday. Well, okay, come June, if things are better, maybe we'll go out, but we're not going to buy three dinners or 10 <laughs> dinners or however many we skip. We're going to buy one dinner. But you're pent up. There's no pent up. Yeah, yeah, pent up maybe is better because you're in the house, but uh, there's no pent up demand for those dinners. Um, it's just lost wealth. We lost output, permanently lost wealth. Now, I think people uh, lose that, like particularly because most people, particularly on CNBC, that are just talking, they'll generally just talk with no numbers, no dates. So I think uh, you give people a healthy dose of that, and that's why you know why would you speak to anybody else who who, who speaks any anything else other than math, history, fully loaded? When it's actually coming out of your mouth, what are you actually saying? I think that a lot of people have. Uh, can see the difference. But but when you actually think of, of a company, like a lot of these people, journalists, whatever, again, nice people, but uh, they've never, and, and a lot of investors too, I might add, they've never actually built or run a company. It's the same dynamics at work when it comes to drawing down your cash flows, tapping your credit lines, digging yourself into a hole. You aren't pent up. You're just trying to dig back out of that place. And moreover, there are a lot of businesses like hotels, casinos, just stuff you know, as you know, like they don't make any money anyway until they're back to 80, 90 percent occupancy. So I think that's what Correct. people like when I look at the duration of post-depression, post-recession, et cetera. Guys on slide uh, 34, just so what Jim's saying, like actually he's a human being that the numbers that he's is saying is actually accurate. And he's chron chronologically going through all of history quite quickly. Um, but again, we've not had a greater than 20 percent um, drawdown in GDP peak to trough going back to your point back in the 1930s. So again, there's nothing in the remote area code of that 
And by the way, you know, with the, the, the economic recession, as people can see here, uh, of 2001 into 2002, you could have lost 50, 60, 70 percent of your money in the stock market and you barely had a recession. So, I mean, this is, I think people are way outside of, of their realm of understanding what's actually happening here within the lens of, of history. Um, so my question on that is, what do we know, if anything, at all, Jim? Like, I mean, quite seriously, like, why would I just say that it, it, could, it could be as bad, or why couldn't it be worse? I mean, I, 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 a lot of, most people that I talk to on the phone, and I'm just sitting in my office all day long, call, call after call with institutional investors, every single one of them wants to know where the V is, the other side. Yeah. Can it end in a month? And I'm having right. a harder time actually painting whether or not I'm bearish enough on this economic calamity. Well, uh, maybe, maybe I can help with that. But uh, yeah, no, you make first of all, you make a couple of very good points, Keith. Number one is that, you know, which I said earlier, we haven't seen this since the 1920s. I mean, we're uh, forget about recession. This is a depression. So let's get the uh, terminology correct. We're down in the second quarter. Well, we don't know. I mean, the second quarter is one day old, right? So, uh, but uh, but a order of magnitude, 20 to 30 percent. Let's hope it's not worse than that. But again, you're back to. Uh, your, your, your 1937 slide, uh, which was about 18 percent, and then and before that, uh, much higher. But the, the reason the Great Depression, by the way, lasted from 1929 to 1940, those are the conventional dates uh, from historians, it was actually two technical recessions. 33 to 1933, 1936 was actually not, I mean, there was growth. 1933 was one of the best years in the history of the stock market, but it was we were working off such a low level that even after the improvement, you know, so uh, unemployment went from 25% to 11%. Well, great, but it's still 11%. And that was the point. And then 37, yep. boom, we get whacked with another very severe recession. So people never, uh, never got out of it, never got over it. So as far as um, today is concerned, uh, you know, a couple of things. So a lot of businesses, so businesses are shut down. Okay, all the employees are terminated. And we got this, the CARES Act. And okay, uh, I'm not saying don't do that. You have to do that. But that's two months' pay. That, that, that's what those loans are. Uh, you're going to get two months' pay. Okay, maybe you make a rent check, and you know, wish, we wish everyone well. Uh, gets you to July. Then what? I mean, you're, this is something that's going to linger for years. Um, this, that's not not more than just kind of a, a temporary lift. And again, there's no stimulus effect. Is it is it like putting a tourniquet on a bleeding patient? Yeah, I learned to tie a tourniquet when I was a. Uh, 10 years old in the Boy Scouts, but that doesn't mean your problems are over. It just means you, you've stopped the bleeding a little bit. Uh, so that that's one thing. And then, so let's say you terminated all of your employees, you shut your doors, and that's I, I see it on the street, so we all do. Um, well, let's say the crisis, the, the, again, the pandemic and the economic crisis are, are two different things. The, the, the pandemic caused the economic crisis, that's clear. But the, the pandemic will run its course. I, I don't know when. I'm not an epidemiologist, although I'm pretty good at math. I, I know how to work the models. Uh, but, you know, by May or June or something, does it die out because of warm weather? And we, we got some treatments. And if you're going to die, you died already and the rest are recovered. That's what happens in pandemics. But that doesn't mean the, the economic impact is over. So now you reopen yours. Well, if you laid off 20 employees, are you going to hire back 20 on day one? 
Right. Probably not. You might hire 10 or seven say, hey, let's, let's run lean and mean. Let's see if we can get through this. And by the way, loans notwithstanding, a lot of businesses were hanging by a threat anyway, not just small businesses, uh, you know, pizza parlor, dry cleaner, whatever, but some fairly large businesses, some Fortune 500 companies were, were on the edge. They're not going to come back from this. Um, and so we're going to see bankruptcies. We're going to see defaults. We're going to see uh, high unemployment linger. You know, some improvement, yeah, but not not nearly back where we were. This is not sunk in yet. And and you know, I I try to keep it. Uh, I only deal with politics to the extent it affects economics. So you know, vote for who you want. I'm not here as a a political cheerleader, but uh, I'll tell you, the market is struggling to um, reprice to discount for the pandemic. They're struggling even harder to discount for the depression because they don't know where the bottom is. One thing the market, I, I, I can tell you, is not discounting, but this, they're going to get a wake-up call is President Biden. Um, this election has gone from the, my models, which are highly accurate, they worked in. I predicted Trump in 2016, you know, before the election. Um, but uh, I had Trump at about a 74% probability rising because of the theta and the, the optionality of a recession to 90% by November. Well, that's out the window because the recession is here or worse. So now it's a toss-up. You, know, you got to start over and take, get new data. Yeah. It's a toss-up. So, so President Biden, you know, higher taxes, more regulation, Green New Deal, uh, a few other goodies. Market has not discounted for that. And, and they're going to have to start thinking about it. So we're far from the bottom. You know, the, the, the market's trying to discount, and I mean this quite seriously. You know how it works. I mean, literally, every day, six calls in a row. I have to tell our sales team now, 45 minutes max, because I'm going to lose my mind by the fifth call. Um, everyone asks the same question. It's like there's one community of people, which is the majority. They're like, well, because it was so bad, it has to come back so fast. And then you have a minority uh, percentage of the community, by which I can see their returns reflect that. They're the minority, but they, have the, they, they actually preserve capital who think by virtue of it being a pandemic, you're ensuring that you're having the first recession, depression, therefore it's gonna be much longer than you think. So it's, you're at a fork in the road, like Yogi Bear would say, and you gotta, you, you gotta take the fork. Um, but literally, right. literally I, I, I'm, I'm just using my own experience and, and it's not, a, it's not a, a qualitative number. I'm saying there's probably a third of investors who are positioning for this appropriately. Uh, and on every bounce, you lose some of them because they have to almost, they're almost forced to believe and that's the bigger thing. I struggle with it, Jim. I, I, I truly do. I, I need you as my shrink right now. Like, what the hell am I supposed to say to them without pissing them off further in, in terms of answering the question if they want, the, if they want my answer? Well, um, I'd say a couple of things. And, you know, in my predictive analytic techniques, which obviously do have a very good track record, it's a lot of what I, I learned in, you know, 10 years at the, uh, at the CIA. Because what do you do in the intelligence community? I always say, if you have all the data, a smart high school kid can solve a problem. Yes. What the intelligence community has to do is how do you solve problems when you don't have the data? Yep. You know, you had one 9-11. You, you know, Janet Yellen would wait for, you know, 20 9-11s and you know, 60,000 dead, and then we'd have a database uh, that would satisfy her. Uh, we had one, and we had to get ready for the next one. Uh, so what do you do? Well, there are techniques. They're not frequentist statistical techniques. Uh, you actually use Bayes' theorem, which is based on incomplete information. So you start with a guess and you're honest with yourself. It's a guess, it's a, a, a sm as smart a guess as you can make it, but it's a guess. But what you do, you update the guess based on posterior information, new information. That's what the, the Janet Yellen type statisticians hate because like, oh no, give me more data. It's like, I'm sorry, we don't have it. Let's, let's as to paraphrase Don Rumsfeld, let's go to war with the data we have. Now what happens is when something happens after your initial estimate, you assess the conditional probability of that happening if your estimate were true or false. 
know, is what are the, what's the probability that, that item two would have happened if my original estimate was true? Well, if the answer is, uh, you know, extremely high, then you're like, okay, now I'm going to improve my odds. I'm going to go from 50 to 60% as the case may be, or vice versa. You go the other way, discard it. So you, you update with the information you get, recognizing that, that none of this is perfect, but it is a, a very powerful discipline technique. So, um, and, and then let's not uh, underestimate, uh, in fact, this may be front and center, is the, the psychological aspects of this. And, you know, behavioral psychology is, you know, the, the smart people have read Daniel Kahneman and the popular version is Michael Lewis or whatever, and Larry Summers talks about it. But it has not been incorporated into mainstream economic models. It, right. it, people know about it. But so when, when you combine those two and a little history uh, for good measure, what you get is an asymmetry. Just because the, um, uh, in fact, this is not only worse than the Great Depression, it's much faster. The, 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 the statistics we looked at for the Great Depression played out over three to four years. Yep. This happened over three to four weeks. Uh, and so we've we've never seen anything like it before. You probably have to go back to the Middle Ages for for something comparable to this. Uh, and again, the, 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 the psychological boundary is enormous. So you have a swift, rapid decline. That does not mean there's no logic behind saying you get a swift, rapid recovery. You're much likely to chug along the bottom for a long time. Little by little, you'll you'll make your way higher, but things will never be the same. That's a, a you know, get rid of the denial, get rid of the happy talk. Um, understand it exactly as I described it, and you'll be uh, you'll be much better pre prepared. But you know, I mean, I think well, not only has green shoes been discredited, but by the dips, uh, hopefully, uh, has been discredited also. But no, I, I see the same thing, Keith, in my message traffic, and I, I've consultant clients, yeah. consulting clients who haven't called in four years. All of a sudden, they they got to talk to me, you know, yesterday, yeah. which is fine. I, I I like you. I take those calls, but. Um, they're, they're so afraid of missing the bottom. Oh, gee, is this it? Is it over? Can I jump back in? It's a good way to lose money. Yeah, it's, it's, it goes right back to the problem that you and I have in general with the consensus or the, the, uh, the establishment, uh, which is quite simply that they think everything has a linear relationship. So a V, right. you know, quite, quite obviously, you go down one way and you go up the other way and it should be linear. It should be symmetrical. Um, which, right. is, which in real life is total bullshit. I mean, um, just a couple slides to, to show that, like the front end of this, and, and by the way, um, thanks for basically reiterating exactly what we do. We, we imply a Bayesian inference process. Every data point we get, we put it on the front end of the historical context that we're riding from. And a lot of people miss that we're you know, in the middle uh, or near the end of, of, a, of a full employment cycle anyway. So this was a very dangerous place, just like 2011 was, to have an economic shock because it only ensures that you slow at a faster rate. And a good Bayesian would just assume that. That's, it's, there's no luck in, or in, in calling viruses, 9-11 pandemics, et cetera. But on slide 78, guys, on jobless claims, that's the real front end of it. When you, you, you have 100% probability of being in a recession, and in this case, um, some, some version of a depression, when you're past your full employment cycle peak. But when you take that data point from last week, Jim, and we're going to get the next one tomorrow, these, they're every Thursday, no matter where you're going to go, you're going to get a nonlinear uh, reality in your model. And the reality is people don't have models for this. Slide 81, where I'm just showing you um, jobless claims against consumption growth. I mean, it's not even on the page. Not even on the page. I mean, so there's nonlinearity, right. and then there's that. I mean, so to me... That scares the shit out of me. I mean, I mean, as a human being, um, as a as a stock market bearer or a late cycle credit bearer, you could have done that every single time at the end of the cycle and made money and you know done well for yourself individually. But for 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 the for the sake of humanity, to have people rub this off as a V bottom, it's 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 beyond ridiculous. It's actually reckless. 
Um, I don't know how you'd classify doctors if they had this, this kind of malpractice in terms of their opinions, but it's crazy. I think it's crazy. Right. I'm, uh, yeah, and you, you guys, uh, Hedge Eyes had, has a, rig a rigorous model with your, your quad four scenario, quads one, two, three, four, and I follow that closely. Uh, I have rigorous models with uh, what I talked about, uh, you know, Bayesian statistics, behavioral economics, and uh, uh, you know, history and other inputs into that. Uh, so our models differ, but but the point is they're they're rigorous and they correspond to reality. And interestingly, they've produced the same result. Unlike, um, you know, I mean, can we stop talking about the Phillips curve for a change? Uh, you know, the, the inverse relationship between unemployment. But we're we're going to get we're going to get very high unemployment and probably deflation, not just disinflation, but uh, but deflation. But we had very low unemployment for 10 years with uh, with disinflation, with no inflation. So there is no there is no correlation there. You can these two things are separate for separate reasons. So you just have to throw away these junk models the, the Keynesian multiplier is dead, dead. Uh, and I don't just make statements like that for, you know, dramatic effect. There, there are models behind it. And here I'm referring to uh, Rogoff and Reinhardt, uh, Ken Rogoff and Carmen Reinhardt. They're both at Harvard now. Carmen was at um, the University of Maryland for a long time. But um, they had that book, you know, this time is different. Uh, that's 12 years old. But they've had a series of papers. And they, they look at the impact of debt to GDP ratios. Yep. Um, and they've looked at it uh, for across centuries, developed economies, developing economies, everything in between selected for geography, for state of development, et cetera. And what's amazing is they got the same results every time. And that was, it didn't remember how you sliced it. The same phenomena appeared, which is that once the debt to GDP ratio goes past 90%, your Keynesian multiplier goes below one. Mm -hmm. So the Keynesian multiplier says, you know, government, you're in a liquidity trap, et cetera, can do certain conditions by you borrow a dollar, you spend a dollar and you get a dollar 20 of GDP. And that's because, you know, the person you spend it on, uh, hires more people and they go enter, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So that's that's called velocity or the turnover of money. Well, Keynes called this his general theory of, um, uh, you know, uh, employment uh, and, uh, and, and money and interest rates. But it turns out it's not a general theory. It was a little bit of Einstein envy there on his part. It was uh, it's a special theory, which means it applies in certain conditions. Well, what are the conditions? One is you're in a recession or just coming out of one. You have a lot of excess capacity, you have a low debt to GDP ratio, and you have a liquidity trap, and then government spending can substitute for private spending and increase aggregate demand. There's a little bit of a multiplier. It could actually be a timing difference, but it works in those conditions. None of those conditions apply. We weren't in a recession until, until you know, last month. We were, we were in a, an 11-year expansion. The debt to GDP ratio was not low. It was it was a, a record high, other than the end of World War II. Uh, we did not have a lot of excess capacity. Unemployment was the lowest in, in 50 years. So none of the conditions apply. Well, now, uh, now you got this 2.2 trillion dollar spending bill that the Congress just passed. That's the the the, the fiscal stimulus, but. It's, it's a spending bill that spends, but there's no stimulus there for the reason I'm about to explain. So throw throw 2.2 trillion of debt on top of a $1 trillion baseline deficit for fiscal 2020. So all of a sudden you're at 3.2 trillion. But buried in 2.2 trillion was $425 billion for the treasury to invest in the Fed. And I've said all along, you know, people are like, well, it's okay because the Fed's guaranteed uh, the money market. They've guaranteed commercial paper. They've guaranteed the primary dealers, you know, et cetera. And I said, okay, who's guaranteeing the Fed? 
And the answer is nobody. But now suddenly, uh, but I had a famous dinner with one of the members of the board of governors and, uh, um, I, I just looked at her. I, I didn't mean to be rude, but I said, you know, uh, Governor, your your bank, the Federal Reserve is insolvent. At the time, interest rates were higher, so on a mark-to-market basis, the 10-year notes were underwater, and they were insolvent on a mark-to-market basis. She goes, no, we're not. I said, uh, no one's done that. I said, well, math. And I said, well, I have, and I think others have, and you're insolvent. And she harumped and said, well, maybe we are, but uh, central banks don't need capital. That's exactly <laughs> That's what she said. Central banks don't need capital. I said, well, try telling that to the American people. But apparently they do need capital because they got $425 billion from the Treasury. But here's the point. The Fed is going to take that money and leverage it 10 to 1, which means that will support a $4 trillion expansion of the balance sheet on top of the $4 trillion they already have. So you're looking at numbers like $7, 8000000000000 trillion or higher. That's where the Fed's going to monetize the $3 trillion of deficit plus probably more on the way that we're getting on the fiscal side of things. This is uncharted territory. Um, but I can, and now, by the way, the modern monetary theorists, we don't have to spend a lot of time on them. Uh, my friend, uh, Stephanie Kelton, a professor at SUNY, um, uh, who, uh, State University of New York, who, uh, is by the way, the head economic advisor to Bernie Sanders. And I'd remind people that that campaign is still uh, alive. Uh, but she's the, the big brain of modern monetary theory. This is what they wanted all along. They said, hey, what's the problem? The Fed can go to six, seven trillion. And legally they can, by the way. Um, it, but they want to spend it on other things than it's actually getting spent on. That's a political debate. But they said you could do this. And I said, uh, no, you can't. You can do it legally. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll grant that. But there is an invisible psychological boundary. No one knows where it is. Bernanke and Yellen didn't want to find out. They were they worried that it was you know some five billion range. Uh, Jay Powell is going to find out. But there's a point at which you don't need a PhD. You're an everyday American. You say you know what? I don't know what's going on here, but I I'm out of here. I I've lost confidence in the dollar. This can't end well. Uh, you know, get me real estate. Get me gold. Get me natural resources. I'll take some. I'll take whatever. But get me out of the dollar. And that's where you can go from deflation to inflation very quickly. Yeah. Uh, my, my forecast my forecast right now is deflation, just to be clear about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that doesn't mean inflation is dead forever. You got the dry wood, which is the which is the base money. Um, but all you need is that velocity match. That's the match that turns into a, a conflagration. That could be coming sooner than people expect. Well, I mean, uh, by definition, you talk about the, the wrong side of the V uh, and a nonlinear relationship on the other side. All you need are for markets to crash at a faster rate. I mean, if you take oil to five dollars, uh, you can have you can that's one hell of a deflation, and then you can reflate from there. Um, so, I mean, a lot of this has to do with like the semantics. Um, you can you know, reflation is possible from very dire levels. So, I, I think I fit on the same side um, of, of that view as you. Uh, just by the way, uh, on the um, just to just to wrap up, and then we'll get some um, get into some of the questions. Because you know, people are obviously going to ask, you know, in all the different ways that you've suggested they they preserve wealth. Can you walk through why you think, like the last time the Fed looked like they were pushing on a string or just being ineffective and fully loaded with the bazooka and Hank the market tank, et cetera? Even Buffett was in there in October of '08. It just didn't work. You know, uh, gold right. did did have a tough time, and interest rates stopped going down from March to October. Of 08. Can you buy? You know, can you just walk people through how that can happen after gold has already gone up a lot? Uh, and 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 by the way, if you think it could happen again, a correction. Right. Well, you know, people talk about the price of gold, and I I think of gold by weight. So you know, yeah. give me an ounce of gold, 
stick it in a drawer, come back in a year, guess what? It's still an ounce of gold. It hasn't reproduced. But, of course, the dollar price can change. So there's the, basically there, there are multiple drivers, um, but basically the dollar price of gold is the, is the inverse or measure of your confidence in the dollar. So a higher dollar price of gold means people are losing confidence in the dollar. A lower dollar price of gold means people are gaining confidence in the dollar. So everyone looks at, you know, I'm, I know foreign exchange traders, of course. So they look at the dollar, you know, the euro dollar cross rate or the dollar yen cross rate or the, uh, you know, Australian dollar, Canadian dollar. It, if you're a trader, fine. Uh, if you're in the export import business, pay attention. But those are kind of meaningless. And the reason they're meaningless is that you're measuring paper versus paper. There is no objective yardstick. There is no... Uh, ex 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 exogenous metric to measure all of the currencies against the metric. They're just being measured against each other. Right. And so, uh, so that's the purpose gold serves. And so we're heading for another currency where, by the way, I mean, right now the dollar is strong, probably make it a little stronger. It's going to, it's going to get a lot weaker by the fourth quarter. And I'll tell you why, because if the U S economy is outperforming, we don't mind a strong dollar. It's kind of a gift to the rest of the world. We say, hey, you can you can cheapen your currencies, uh, you know, promote your exports, pour a little inflation if you need it, whatever. We're strong enough to bear that. We'll carry that weight on our shoulders because it's good for us to have trading partners. But there comes a time when the U.S. economy is so weak, we take a different view. We say, you know what? We're the biggest economy in the world. If we go down, we're taking the world with us and we can't go down. So now the time has come for a weaker dollar. And this last happened in 2011, 2010, 2011. That's when I wrote Currency Wars. The, the all-time low for the dollar, the all-time low was uh, August 2011. Mm -hmm. And guess what? It was the all-time high for gold. The yeah. Gold hit $1,900 an ounce the same time the dollar hit, hit an all-time low. And the, I used the Fed, uh, Fed's broad uh, trade-weighted index. To, to me, that's the best index for this purpose. Now, as far as gold is concerned, it has bull and bear markets measured in dollars, um, just like any other asset class. If you want to, uh, you know, privilege the dollar as your numeraire. Uh, so the first bull market was 1971 to 1980. Nine years, it went up over 2,000 percent. The second bull market was 1999 to 2011. Uh, gold went up uh, about 700 percent over those 12 years. That's what a bull market looks like. Now, we had two bear markets, okay, 1980 to 1999, that was a long haul, and gold went down 75%. 2011 to 2015, um, gold went down 50%. But the, the new bull market started, I can date it, December 16th, uh, 2015. You like timestamps, Keith, and so do I. Uh, check the chart. Two, uh, December 16th, 2015, gold was $1,050 an ounce. And I had a conversation with, with Jim Rogers, which I always remember, and we all know who Jim Rogers is, you know, greatest commodities trader of all time. Um, and this was before the bottom. We were in the Dominican Republic. And he said, Jim, because we're both bullish on gold and we both see it much, much higher. I mean, I've, my latest forecast has it at $16,000 an ounce in the next four years. Uh, but Jim said to me, nothing goes to the moon without a 50% retracement. And this is talking about commodities. He said, that's just the way it is. Uh, well, and I kind of internalized that and thought about, it. well, guess what? We had the 50% retracement. If you use the 1999 base of 250, if that's your base, you go up to 1900. Uh, so that's a 1650 gain. Take 50% of that. That's down 825. 1900 minus 825, bingo. There's your 1050 or you're close enough within $50 an ounce. So we had the 50% retracement. We are now in the third great bull market. 
And if you just take a simple average of the last two, you don't have to get crazy. Just take a simple average of uh, the uh, 2,000% and 700%. You get to you get to 1,300%, uh, or you know, 13 times the price working off that uh, off that 1050 base. That's how you get into 13 and or higher um, price for gold. And as you know, if you don't do it logarithmically, uh, if you just do a dollar price, every hundred dollars per ounce is a smaller percentage of the prior base. So you, you do get these, you'll have these $100 an ounce days and, and a lot of them uh, coming up. So that's what, that's what gold is going to do. Uh, I, I, I've always recommended 10%. Don't back up the truck uh, unless you don't have any. But, you know, don't go 50% in gold. You should never be, my view, not, not that high in, in any asset category. I don't care what it is. But um, gold will probably be the best performing asset class over the next five years. And uh, also, just so that we get people, because people lose their shit, Jim, when I don't uh, obviously clarify between the difference between paper and physical gold. Uh, obviously, we know what that is. And thank you for, again, uh, the paper needs to be redefined depending on what currency we're uh, you know, using the calculation on. But, right. but on physical, um, there's a lot of questions on this, and that's what I want to get to next or your questions. If you have questions, pop them in the queue. Uh, your, uh, the other people will vote on whether or not your question is a good question or not. Um, but there will be a lot of different permutations of this question, Jim, which is, you know, what are you seeing right now uh, in the physical gold market or, or physical precious metals um, overall? Well, um, you know, unlike a lot of Wall Street analysts, I actually go in gold mines. I've been to quite a few open pit uh, underground. I talked to gold dealers, people well-regarded, well-established in the physical business. And one guy very good friend I've been in touch with for years, and he's he's in the elite, so he, he gets his phone calls returned in these situations. He called me up and he said, Jim, uh, I just want to tell you what's going on. And he said, uh, um, you, you can't get it. And and here's the point. You know, I rec- so you recommend $1,100 an ounce, $1,200 an ounce, $1,300 an ounce, $1,400 an ounce. Everybody yawns, nobody wants it. And what I said was, you know, what are you waiting for? Because when you really want the gold, when you wake up and say, I got to get some gold, you're not going to be able to get it. The time to buy it is when it's available. So here we are, $1,600 an ounce, give or take. Um, and, and the dealers don't have it. So the Royal Canadian Mint was closed. The uh, Swiss refiners can't ship the gold to the United States because of travel restrictions. Uh, the One of the biggest gold warehouses in the world is, uh, you know, we all know about the Fed, but actually it's the Brinks uh, Secure Warehouse at JFK. They were working on half shifts because of the coronavirus. Um, there's another Brinks facility, comparable size in Salt Lake City. Guess what? They had an earthquake. They had to shut it down to assess the damage from the earthquake. This is uh, Murphy's Law, of course. If I ever catch up to Murphy, he's in trouble. But um, so so the, 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 the supply chain was breaking down, quite apart from uh, excess demand. Uh, and so now, you know, if, you're, if your dealer is friendly and knows you and has a little inventory, fine, you might you might get a little bit of a delivery. <laughs> By the way, the other thing that people don't realize is that you cannot sell physical gold more than 28 days forward or forward delivery. Because if you do, you are now a futures contract as defined by the Commodity Exchange Act. And it's illegal to deliver more than 28 days ahead unless you're on a futures exchange. Um, and so... Um, uh, but that's what that's how long it's taking. The U.S. Mint is back ordered for the rest of the year. So they are producing gold, but don't try putting an order in because they won't fill it because, as I said, they're back ordered. They're in, they're, their output for the rest of the year is spoken for. Um, I've spoken to Swiss refiners, same thing. They're like, yeah, we might make a little more gold, but it's all it's all sold in advance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're at the point now we actually uh, there's a lot of difficulty getting it. And that's the. 
the unfortunate flip side of people taking too much for granted. But as I, I said to anyone who would listen and people read my books, I said, well, you know, what are you waiting for? Get it when you can. Yeah. And if, if you can't get the physical, I mean, the paper is not exactly a, a terrible option. I mean, it does uh, reflect the underlying, not, 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 not uh, the fervent demand for the, uh, for, for the physical, as you're pointing out right now. Um, yeah, but, but with it, was it, sorry, just quickly, with, with a lot of risk, and it was a, you buy an ETF, gold ETF, okay, it tracks the price, gives you price exposure, but that's not gold. That's a, that's a share in a trust that's traded on the New York Stock Exchange, and they can suspend trading or redemption, any, well, not redemption because you can't redeem it, but right. they can suspend trading at any time or close the exchange. Yeah, just like it's just like people saying, "Well, I own a piece of this company because I own a share of their stock." No, not really. I mean, uh, <laughs> you, own a, you own a share. <laughs> <laughs> you own a share. Yeah. Okay. So the first question, the one that has the most upvotes, and I, uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to take my uh, a crack at this. I want to see if you agree. Um, the question is, can you guys give us thoughts on whether inflation? This is like the the question that everybody wants it to be a. a all in or all out, and and I don't think I think our answers are similar to this. Uh, let's see. Can you give our, can you give, guys give your thoughts on whether or not inflation or deflation will prevail and across a broader a timeline? Now, so to me, Jim, and I, tell me if if you agree or disagree with this. I actually think this is going to happen similarly. It's never quite the same way, but similarly to post financial crisis and recession of 08, 09, where you go from deflation, you make a ton of money on being positioned for deflation to the inflation off those lows. So that's why, you know, by 2011, to your point, gold, commodities, CRB index uh, are at all-time highs. The dollar is at a 40-year low. You know, that's how I see this playing out. You have to have your financial crisis and recession, or however you want to, you're calling it a depression, first, and then we can have that other side of it. Do you agree with that? Uh, yes and no. Let, let me be specific. You know, I like to say that a lot of smart people out there, they're not uneducated. They have all the diplomas on the wall, but they're miseducated, which means they've been taught a lot of stuff that's just not true. And the, the biggest piece of miseducation, as I said earlier, is Austrian economics and, uh, and, and neo-monetarism. Uh, and basically, it was always, you know, money supply equals inflation, money supply equals inflation, which is not true. As we mentioned, you need the velocity. So a lot of people are looking at an expansion of the money supply, base money going from, you know, uh, uh, four trillion to eight trillion, which it is, and it's happening yeah. very quickly. And applying, putting their Milton Friedman hat on, and say, well, that has to be inflation, and that, that's not true. Um, and, and I'll explain why. And that's that's one thing we have to clarify. The other thing is, what do we mean by inflation? If you're talking about consumer price inflation, that's different than asset inflation, and most economists really think of it in terms of CPI. Uh, so yeah, gold will will soar for the reasons I mentioned. Some other asset classes could be oil off a, off a low bottom uh, will go up but that's not quite the same as cpi cpi is different so uh but but the thing is so we're going to get very strong deflation now and for certainly the remainder of this year probably into 2021 but as i said earlier that can flip to inflation very quickly and the reason is not because of money supply but because of psychology and all it takes is, is a little spark somebody said well, wait a second uh uh, gee, they printed all this money. Um, the price of this one—I better guess—I better guess them before the price goes higher. And then it—and then it may, you may see it in the price of gold. Uh, in fact, you will see it in the price of gold. And then that could lead to a generalized increase in commodity prices, which could lead to the kind of inflation we're, we're talking about. So I don't think we have to choose between one or the other, Keith. You can get both sequentially. The sequence can flip very quickly, as it did in the 1970s. I saw it happen. Yep. Um, and so my forecast would be. Uh, deflation for now, uh, chug along the bottom for a while, but don't be shocked if inflation comes uh, right behind that. But don't don't base your inflation forecast on money supply. 
You need the change of psychology, and that's a much slower phenomenon. Well, the velocity of money, you spent a lot of time talking about that. I spent a ton of time talking about the uh, volatility of asset classes and asset prices. You know, do you agree, uh, this is not one of the questions in the queue, but do you agree that the only way to uh, eradicate an imbalance is for the volatility to perpetuate the drawdown or the deflation of those asset classes? Well, yes, but uh, the problem is that has been prevented from happening. In other words, the Fed... Um, the Fed intervention got to be uh, so common, it wasn't even an intervention anymore. It was just policy. It was just the steady state. And so uh, most investors, you say, yeah, most investors alive today don't, don't even know what, uh, uh, what it looks like for, for prices to fall so far that you actually, you know, as uh, Schumpeter said, you know, creative destruction. We haven't had any destruction. <laughs> um, so uh, so uh, that's a very healthy process. And now there is a role for... Uh, government support to help people, to help individuals, but we haven't been doing that. Maybe we started last week, but we, we've been propping up corporations, uh, and a lot of which should uh, should die or should fail, and it's a very, very healthy process because assets then get reallocated to higher and better uses. So uh, I think we'll see that be now because this crisis is so great. Uh, it's beyond the capacity of the Fed or the Congress to solve so we're going to start to see some real economic um, consequences that have been prevented from happening for, um, I'll, I'll go back, well, certainly the 90s, early 90s, uh, you, you know, pre-LTCM, let's go back to 1994 with the tequila crisis uh, with Mexico when, uh, you know, Bob Rubin, Secretary of the Treasury, wanted the Congress to bail out Mexico. And they said, are you kidding? Get the heck out of here. And Rubin went back to the Treasury and used the Exchange Stabilization Fund, uh, which, by the way, was was created with the profits of FDR's gold confiscation in 1933. So uh, these things have long, uh, long legacies. Uh, and he's, he bailed out Mexico without congressional approval using the Treasury slush fund. And oh, by yep. the way, where did the $425 billion to bail out the Fed go? Went into the exchange stabilization fund. So that's their, that's their slush fund. So, um, but we may, be, we may be witnessing the end of bailouts. This is much more just helping people in need. Uh, we're going to see some big failures. Like you said, I mean, it's, I think it's just north of 3000 uh per family of four or something like that. That's only going to last a certain period of time. Uh, this question, right. there are a lot of questions on the currency war, and I'm always interested in, in how you see all the players at the table right now. Obviously, we have MBS in Saudi Arabia, Putin. We have a lot of different players versus the prior currency wars uh, that you've traded through and risk managed through. How do you see this one playing out, and what, what's the end game? Yeah, uh, my my best information is that MBS is being taken to the woodshed in a serious way, meaning either you uh, turn off the spigot, or turn down the spigot, get the price of gold up, or you know you you might uh, be looking for another job. Uh, and um, the the point being, so MBS started this price war with Putin because they couldn't agree on output levels, and Putin said we're going to keep selling oil, and MBS said fine, I'll open the spigots, and the price of oil tanked. Uh, if it was just a spat between, you know, a king and a dictator, fine, or your <laughs> crown prince and a dictator, you know, leave, leave them to it. But it's not that. This is going to kill the Permian. This is going to kill uh, North Dakota. This is going to kill Pennsylvania. By the way, Pennsylvania is the biggest swings, swing state, uh, most important prize in the upcoming election. I, again, I don't uh, vote for who you want to, but you can't ignore politics at a time like this. So um, now in the last oil 
price collapse, 2014, 2015, it went from about $100 an ounce, the low was around 23, 24, somewhere in that zip code. The break even for fracking at the time was about $60 a barrel. So as soon as that got below 60 or well below 60 and stayed there, a lot of those guys went bankrupt. But it wasn't the end of fracking. What happened was the big guys, Chevron, ExxonMobil, uh, you know, and other large companies went in and they bought up the assets for 10 cents on the dollar and they lowered the break even to around 35. Well, 35 is a big improvement on 60, but it's still 35. It's not 25. And so uh, if you don't get the price of oil up to 35 or higher fast, you're going to shut down the Permian. And that is, those are massive job losses. And, you know, with, with all due respect to, uh, you know, waitresses and bartenders, you know, some of my favorite people, um, these are union jobs. These are high paying jobs with benefits. And you're going to kill Texas, you're going to kill North Dakota, and you're going to kill Pennsylvania. Uh, and that could cost Trump the election. So that will not be allowed to happen. But uh, Putin will play ball, uh, notwithstanding all the, all the Russian nonsense we've had to live through for the last three years. He's a sensible player. But the message in, in the Victoria Coates was uh, selected for this mission. It won't happen overnight. But the message to uh, MBS is you get the price of oil up or, you know, you're you're done. So, um, so I expect that will happen, not in one, um, you know, immediate gap up, but look for the price of oil to recover from here because it has to. Mm -hmm. All right, here's another question for you. Uh, and you do, by the way, in this, in, um, in Aftermath, you do address this um, you know, coherently. The, the, can Fed policy with swap lines, et cetera, et cetera, keep the dollar down, or do we eventually need a new Bretton Woods, or is there any, way, any other way that they'd think of to get out of this? Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a densely packed question, so let's unpack it a little bit. So the swap lines are open, uh, you know, line up, get your dollars. And what's interesting about the, this is that, I mean, just to explain for the listeners, so let's say you're a European bank and you have a dollar, a lot of dollar loans or dollar investments, which they do, and you funded that with dollar liabilities, which are frequently commercial paper, um, you know, short-term uh, deposits, et cetera. Well, there's now a run on the banks, right? Everyone wants their, their money back and they're not rolling over the commercial paper, et cetera. Um, and so like any bank, you turn to your central bank for dollars, but the, the ECB does not print dollars, it prints euros. So how does the ECB get the dollars to bail out its own banks? The answer is the Fed prints up a bunch of dollars, the ECB prints up a bunch of euros, they swap them, the Fed gets the euros and the ECB gets the dollars and then they hand them out to the banks. That's how they, they keep the whole thing going. Well, a couple of things about this. Number one, uh, this is not regulated. Uh, they can do as much as they want. Number two, it's off balance sheet, non-transparent. Uh, it's a little more transparent than it was in 2009, but not much. So we don't actually know the full extent of this. Uh, we do know that the list of uh, banks getting these swaps has greatly expanded. So it's not our buddies that, you know, uh, you know, Madame Lagarde and uh, and the, the head of the Bank of Japan, Kuroda-san. I mean, this is now uh, to a very long list of central banks. Um, the interesting case to me is China. Uh, that's that's the uh, uh, that's the third rail of this whole thing. Uh, they need the dollars as much as anyone, but they're also an enemy in terms of you know running concentration camps and uh, letting this virus leak leak, et cetera. So, do they get a dollar swap with the Fed? Well, I'm not aware of one right now. Uh, if they're doing it, it's pretty closely held. I don't think there is one in place, but if they need that kind of bailout, can they get it? And will that cause a congressional uproar? My estimate is yes, it will, and so they won't get it. So so China's a big big wild card in this whole thing. But the swaps are underway, but then again, what good will it do? This, again, is this keeping the lights on? Yes. Is it providing liquidity? Yes. Is it stimulative? No. 
because all you're doing is stopping the bleeding. You're not, the patient isn't healthy, uh, you know, running around the track. Yep. Uh, people, by the way, it's, and thank you for all the questions in the queue. Uh, people evidently, Jim, have read uh, a lot of your books because <laughs> we're, we're going through a, a lot of different things you've written about. Um, one on the currency wars, this is back from, 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 that, from the points you make there. Um, do you see the IMF stepping in soon with their own bazooka, just like the Fed did, Jim? Uh, for individual cases, yes. For a global monetary reset, no, not yet. Now, this is this gets back to a uh, private conversation I had over drinks with uh, with Tim Geithner, and my thesis was um, that when the Fed's balance sheet was four and a quarter trillion, which it was in uh, uh, you know until 2014, that in the they would try to look, but in the next crisis. They would have to take it up again, but they would be limited. There's this, again, what I call an invisible confidence boundary. And the MMT people say, no such thing. We can go as high as we can. Uh, so we'll find out maybe the hard way. But uh, so so I began to ask myself, well, okay, if the Fed's out of bullets, if they can't, if the Fed and the other central banks cannot reliquify the world, who has a clean balance sheet? And the answer is the IMF. They're, they're actually not that leveraged. They're leveraged about three to one. And they can print these special drawing rights, SDRs. Um, you know, it's, the, the name is intentionally geeky, so nobody will understand it. But it's world money. So they can print world money. They can hand it out. By the way, I, if you read the articles uh, of the IMF, they can give it to the United Nations. They're not limited to member nations. They can give it to multilateral institutions, including the United Nations. Um, so that would be how we would reliquify the world in the next panic. Um, and I, I talked to Geithner about that, and he said, no. He said, um, the IMF is very slow moving. We tried a little bit in 2009, which they did. I might have been the only one to notice, but they did print some SDRs in 2009, not that many. He said, slow moving, didn't seem to have much of an impact. We can't rely on that. Uh, and I said, well, what are you going to do? And he, he just looked at me and said, guarantees. In other words, it wouldn't be Fed money printing. It wouldn't be IMF money printing. They would just issue guarantees, which they did do in 2008. Well, we've seen a lot of that. The Fed is, the Fed has issued more guarantees than they have printed money so far. You know, and kind of so far so good. But but getting back to the IMF uh, question, um, they'll do individual bailouts. You know, I would I would think people like Turkey, uh, Lebanon, small player, but they're broke. Uh, and and other countries will get these bailouts. The IMF just the executive committee just increased their borrowing authority, so they've they've got some uh, they've got some dry powder. But that's not the same as a uh, a trillion SDRs, which would be about 1.5 trillion dollars, um, stepping you know substituting for the central banks. They're going to run the central bank playbook. Uh, my estimate is it won't work. They can do it again. Don't don't get me wrong. When I say these things don't work, it doesn't mean they're not going to be tried. They are going to be tried. They are. They are being implemented as we speak, but they're not going to work to solve the problem. So you get to a point where um, people do lose confidence in the dollar. And by the way, it's not like the dollar is going to get weak and everything else is going to be fine. If you lose confidence in the dollar, you're not running to yen or yuan or euros. <laughs> you're, you're out of everything. You're into gold. That's where that's where gold is your, is your metric. But um, just uh, so the real problem, the real problem is deflation because deflation increases the real value of debt. Now, cash is a very good performing asset in deflation because your dollar is worth more every day. Um, how do you get out of it? I, I, can solve, I can solve a deflationary problem in 15 minutes. Um, you go into the Fed boardroom, close the door, take a vote, come out, say, uh, my fellow Americans, as of now, the price of gold is $5,000 an ounce. 
And uh, we're going to back that up with the printing press in Fort Knox. So if you think that's cheap, sell us your gold, we'll buy it. And of course, they'll print the dollar. So it's like an open market operation. Uh, and if you think that's, I'm sorry, if you think that's rich, sell us the gold and we'll buy it. And if you think it's cheap, come and get it. We'll sell you some gold. In other words, if you use physical gold and the printing press to conduct really what is just an open market operation, no different than what they do in, in notes, and you you peg a price and you stick to it, then the price of gold is $5,000 an ounce. Now, the point of that is not to enrich gold holders. They don't care about them. The idea is to get the price of everything else to go up right. because nothing happens in isolation. This has been done, done twice, once intentionally, once by accident. It was done by FDR in 1933 intentionally. He, the reason gold went up 75% during deflation was they were trying to break the back of deflation and it worked because what FDR wanted, he wanted, I mean, he didn't want to, he took all the gold first so he could make the profits, which he did. But, um, but corn, wheat, steel, copper, everything else went up and it, and it worked. The economy started to grow in 1933. The guy who did it by accident was Richard Nixon. Now he suspended gold redemptions in, in 1971, as we know. He wasn't trying to get inflation, but boy, did he get it. I mean, by, <laughs> by 1980, it was 15%. Um, I remember my, my first uh, home loan, I, I borrowed money to, to buy a, 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 a condo at 13%, my mother cried because I think her first mortgage was like 2%. Uh, but I said, mom, uh, yeah, it's 13%, but inflation is 15%. So my my pre-tax rate is negative two and it's tax deductible, so it's really negative seven. I, I don't know whether my mother followed that logic, but uh, but the point is my my after-tax cost of funds was negative seven. That's, uh, that's cheap money. Uh, so that 13% money was cheaper than 2% money once you factor in inflation. And if you need that, you can get it, but you got to raise the price of gold. Yeah, that's a great, I mean, I, I think that's said by nobody, by the way. So thanks for giving people that. Because, uh, you know, some, some of the questions in the queue, and fortunately we've, we've run out of time. I think I could speak to you all day, and people could certainly listen to you all day. So thanks for making so much time. You've been very gracious with that. But a lot of people really want to, like, the, the questions are like, so, Jim, if you were, you know, the head of the Fed, you know, how would you, how would you, how would you change things? And, I mean, and you've had these answers consistently over time. And, it, and I think the one thing, and amidst all the other questions, because another question, Jim, people are really, you know, that you could see people are quite anxious about their assets and, and the, the confiscation of their wealth and what they should hold. And, and obviously this book that you've written is, is solely directed to ideas around that topic. But the number one thing that people need right now that they, that they may have not had until they listen to you if it's their first time is an education. And that's, that's the biggest thing. Unless you know what the hell's going on, I don't know how people can possibly make the next best, best decision. Whatever you have today, if you're in a bunch of stocks, you know, it's like you got to make up your you got to make up your mind and you have to make some good decisions. The best decision you can make today uh, is obviously the, the, the one with all the information that you have today. So um, I, I highly encourage people to read if you haven't read uh, uh, all of Jim's books and I'd actually read them in order. Obviously, I wouldn't go backwards. Um, you're going to have one hell of an education. It might take you a little bit of time, but uh, you know, there's a lot of time that you waste watching things in the financial media that are of absolutely no value to you at all. Um, in term, and, and, and you know, as we know now, Jim, time is precious. Life is precious. Um, and we only have so much of that. So thanks for, again, thanks. I always thank you for this, but I want to thank you, especially this time, for, for providing uh, an alternative education, one that's actually based on, on a lot of truth, um, you know, so that people can prepare themselves for this. So thanks. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Keith. I'll just drop one, one quick footnote. Obviously, I'm, I'm grateful that people buy my books. But if you want to know what's coming with a slightly longer horizon, read a book called The Mandibles by Lionel Shriver. It's a novel, so 
but you know, fictions can sometimes be uh, be more accurate. But that'll uh, that'll take you even further down the road. But yes, thank you very much, and I'm very grateful for people who uh, who buy my books. And we're uh, grateful for having you on today. So thank you very much. He's Jim Rickards. I'm Keith McCullough. You can find him on Twitter. He's very active. He's out there uh, fighting the good fight, getting the truth out there. So thank you very much. Thanks for listening to our podcast. As a reminder, new Hedgeye subscribers may qualify for a special discount on one of our Hedgeye investing products. Email customer service director Matt Moran at mmoran at hedgeye.com. That's M-M-O-R-A-N at hedgeye.com. This content is for informational purposes and does not constitute an offer to sell or buy any investment vehicle, nor does it constitute an investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. Hedgeye believes the information sources to be reliable but is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions. The opinions expressed are those of the individual speaking. All investments entail a certain degree of risk and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors, including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information is protected by copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient provided access by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited and subject to the terms of service at Hedgeye.com.